They get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle, murky fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with the Sprouts King, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the brain, how it evolved and where we are today. I've been thinking about adaption and the motivators for change. My guest today is Brett Stetka. Brett is an editorial director at Medscape.com. He is a former neuroscience researcher, physician, and journalist, a regular contributor to NPR and Scientific American, and the author of the new book, A History of the Human Brain, From the Sea Sponge to CRISPR, How Our Brain Evolved. Welcome, Brett, and thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I appreciate it. So I want to start with some basic definitions out of the gate. Um, and I'm going to pick the two that are in the title of the book. So the sea sponge and CRISPR. Maybe we'll start with the sea sponge, um, as evolution maybe has to some extent. Why is a sea sponge important and relevant? And then what is CRISPR? Uh, good question, and, and I didn't know the sea sponge was relevant to our evolution until I started researching this book. Um, the sea sponge, which you know still exists today on the on the ocean floor, is just a a little blob of of cells. It kind of floats down there and filters water, and it turns out it's actually probably the first animal to evolve on Earth, um, or certainly one of them. It arose about 700 million years ago, and in doing my research, uh, there it's, the the cells of a sea sponge communicate much in the same way that our brain cells communicate with electricity, with uh, many of the same chemicals or neurotransmitters. Um, so it's it's really, in a way, the starting point of the the human brain or of an animal brain uh, period. So so yeah, it's it's fascinating. These these cells talk to each other, and that is. The rudiments of of a of a brain, which you know, our consciousness, our thought, our movement, our how we sense the environment, how we taste a, a pizza or a hamburger, you know, that that involves neurons or brain cells talking to each other, and you know, in a sea sponge, you can see where that started basically, and that that blew my mind, and that was part of the reason I wanted to write this book and and take it back so far. Yeah, I love the image. Yeah, I just read um, the a Song of Achilles and um, Circe, and I was like, when you talk about them, the Greeks using the sponges to clean the tables and stuff, that, that somehow like is a really nice um, imagery of the connection of the sea sponge and, and the different um, important roles it plays in our lives. How are they communicating? I, I really loved your description of um, the ionic transfer through the membranes and kind of the idea of what, so I think this is important as we go through it, like what gets in and what doesn't, um, and then how, how like that is communication. Uh, sure, and that's a good point. I mean, the, the I should point out the sea sponge is still the same sponges you can buy at, you know, Target or Bed Bath & Beyond or wherever you shop that, you know, we still use actual sponges that aren't plastic sometimes and they're available and that is the creature that led to our brain being able to do what it does um and in terms of the actual communication you know cells and neurons specifically they they work via electricity and they work through chemical electricity so when a when you're doing anything when you're moving your arm or thinking something they're 
literally are, are sodium, as in the sodium from salt, and potassium, which we always hear about from bananas and potatoes and various foods. They have a, they're they're charged and they ru- rush across your your cellular membrane, your ner- your brain cell membrane, and that creates a, a literal electric current, as it would in a electrical wire, basically. And when that current gets to the end of a neuron, it causes the release of neurotransmitters, which, you know, we've all heard about uh, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, which is related to adrenaline. Um, and these kind of run run the show. You know, serotonin is associated with, with depression and our mental state. Dopamine is associated with our reward and pleasure and, you know, how we respond to anything that is, is pleasurable in the world, you know, good or bad. And... And yeah, in the um, in the the sea sponge, cells don't have quite that communicative uh, capacity, but they the cells communicate to each other with some of the same neurotransmitters that our our brain cells do, uh, in a much more rudimentary way. Cells, I mean, sponges don't do much except very slowly expel water, which I've been told is a really slow sneeze by scientists. Um, and and that's really it. It's all, it's all about cells coming together and communicating with each other to create a multicellular organism. And then the impact that it has, right, these different levels of, of in our bodies, serotonin and dopamine. And I know recent neuroscience is starting to think there may be some relationship with schizophrenia and levels of dopamine. So, like, it's, it's important stuff. Um, <laughs> you start the book with two quotes. Um, the first one is... The brain is a world consisting of a number of unexplored continents and great stretches of unknown territory by Santiago Ramon y Cajal. And definitely less unknown than before, but still a lot of things unknown. Um, and maybe this is where your definition of the, the CRISPR will come in, because I'm wondering how much has the study of the brain changed in the last two decades? It's it's changed a whole lot, and and Cahill's quote there is still totally relevant because the brain is so complicated and so complex, and I you know who knows if we'll ever really understand it, um, but certainly we we're a lot further along than we've ever been, um, and I I think in the book I mentioned a quote from a, a professor I had in medical school, uh, probably around 2003. He said to me the brain. Uh, the study of the brain is where the understanding of the heart was in the 1950s, um, you know, and, and which I think is a generous estimate. I think that the brain is so complex and it's, you know, I, I don't know if we'll be able to completely understand it, but it was the final frontier basically in understanding the body and how we work, and that was part of my interest in it from from many years past. Um, and so and and yeah and then the uh you know but that that that's not all for the best cuz obviously we uh we can be you know we've taken over the planet basically given our cognitive success and that leads to wars and it leads to all the, the many of the the unrest we've seen recently and that's why my second quote i think is kurt vonnegut mm-hmm. saying i'm i'm not sure the you know the evolution of the, bl- the brain is actually the you know, the magnificent achievement it seemed to be. And so that's the kind of what we have to wrestle with as humans. We have the capacity for being nice people and benevolent. We have the capacity for being, you know, xenophobic and, and terrible. And as a culture, that's what we have to come come together. And that's and that's what we're, uh, that's where the brain evolution, human brain evolution has, has led us, you know, for better or for worse. And maybe one of the scariest things in the book um, was your discussion about our ability to manipulate 
um, the genome. So the, the advances in understanding the genome and tracking it, and then now um, our ability to splice it and edit it, um, a game changer in, in all sorts of ways, definitely in our ability to understand the workings of the brain, but then also the scary um, science fiction piece as well, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, I use CRISPR in the title, which is, the, you know, a, you know, a big new genetic engineering technology, and it's it's a long scientific word that I can't usually remember. So the acronym is CRISPR, and you can literally go in um, if you know what you're doing. I can't do this, but researchers go in and, and can edit uh, an individual's genome, an adult, uh, an embryo. If you're doing IVF, a child, uh, a sperm or an egg cell, and you know, remove a trait that might cause a disease. Um, so if you have a disease caused by a particular mutation, you can literally go in and take that gene out, and now that child will live a full life instead of, you know, not, um, which is great. And they have, in the laboratory setting, treated hemophilia, the, the blood disorder, which prevents oxygen delivery to the body and um, blindness, certain kinds of blindness. So all of that is, is well and good, and, and hopefully that's where these genetic technologies go, um, that there is a concern that you have uh, designer babies is the big worry. You, you go in, you, you know, parents want to introduce a certain gene for intelligence or for height or, or whatever it may be, name your trait, and you know, in, in the wrong hands, that kind of technology could get out of control. Uh, but that's, that would be a long way off, I think. Except you already have an example in the book about a rogue scientist that was doing um, epigenetics that was being condemned by the rest of the scientific, or the majority of the rest of the scientific community. And I just, am reading, I'm like, okay, we are definitely a world of if we can, we will, right? Like there are just those people that it's like, uh, okay, have you not seen any science fiction movies? <laughs> not, but we can't help ourselves, right? It's going to happen, 100%. Um, the, the example you're talking about was a, a scientist in China used CRISPR to engineer M IVF embryos of two, two girls, two, two babies, that, so that they couldn't acquire HIV or, or you know, the AIDS virus, and, uh, HIV virus, and because their dad had it. They had a high risk of getting it. So, you know, in theory, that could be a good thing. Now they don't have a risk of you know, acquiring AIDS um, from their father, but they, he did it without any regulation. I mean, there's so many ethical concerns here that there was a big backlash against that. And I think globally, most scientists agree we need to proceed really slowly and with caution around CRISPR and, and similar technologies. Um, because, yes, of course, in the wrong hands, there's, there's going to be a rogue scientist that gets this and, and creates is it intentionally inserting certain traits into a, a baby, you know, a young human at some point, and it's just going to have to be regulated, like some issues like cloning and and the internet, all, all these developments that have their upsides and their downsides. So let's talk a bit about evolution. You say evolution is not a progression toward complexity or intelligence with humans in the lead. It's all of us doing the best we can in our given situation. Um, so we can start wherever you want with the, the drivers of evolution, um, with sort of the quick uh, historical, although it's not progression, um, 
And, and maybe we can just start with, let's start with diet. Um, you talk a lot about omnivorism and how crucial that's been in our ability to su- survive and, and the role it's played in the development of the brain uh, and, and um, the importance of meat, um, but mostly our, our, the value that we can eat whatever's available. So, so why was that an, a, a critical aspect of human development? Sure. So I, in my book, I feature the, the primary influences in, the, in our evolution and our brain evolution, um, socializing, being uh, cre- created, creativity was a big one. But our omnivorism or just our, our willingness to eat just about anything was like, cr- crucially important and still is. I mean, we compared to most species, you know, we can eat, we, we can exist on plants, we can subsist on, on grasses and seeds or meat or fish or shellfish. We're very omnivorous, and throughout, if you go back, say, a couple of million years, you know, we all descend from a population in Africa, and the African climate changed. There were glacial periods over 100,000 years or so, or less even. Um, and so, you know, if, if the trees in the forest dried up, and we, you know, our ape ancestors mostly lived in the forest in trees, we would, we could easily, you know, you know, traips out to the savanna or the grassland and dig up tubers or corms. We could eat grasses. We could, you know, find a, you know, spear a fish in a local lake once we had the development of tools and weapons. Um, and so I, a lot of anthropologists, was our adaptability. Um, that was one of the keys to our success, quote-unquote, um, you know, why there were many other human species and many, many other ape species that, that did die off, and, and we excuse me, we didn't, and that's in part just because we could subsist anywhere um, and and eating a a wide variety of foods, which is interesting because still to this day, you know, a Mediterranean diet or a Japanese diet, these these diets that are varied and, you know, heavily plant-based but allow for plenty of fish and, and, and some meat and even even a little wine in the modern period um, are still the healthiest diet. So what, what is healthy for us now is reflected in the influences that got us here in terms of, of diet and many other aspects. I think it's so important in the book to, to, that you go through the detail of the different diets. Like I was thinking, okay, the keto people don't really have it right. Like they've got part of it <laughs> and grab onto that. And it's like, yeah, but that, that is definitely not the whole picture. And then you're running with it, which is, <laughs> is a totally a tendency of our, our American culture. Um, and and of course, yeah. the, the people that just ate grass, the theory is that, you know, they didn't survive. If they were just eating the grasses and then the grasses died up and they died out. And, and again, I say theory because that was the other thing that I thought was so prevalent in the book. Like there are all these different theories um, and and they also are dependent on the popularity of the particular theory or scientist at the time. Um, the the other thing that really struck me was, and you mentioned it a little bit. Every hundred thousand years, you know, the the climate change, um, and that's such a uh, pertinent topic right now. Climate change and and the brink of extinction. And you're like, okay, this is nothing new. I mean, in the book alone, I think you bring up, you know, at least six or so um, specific. 
uh, events of uh, humans being on the brink of extinction. And also, I thought uh, such an interesting aspect that it turns out not only have we been there many times, but that those periods were transformative adaptions that emerge each time, right? Like, like it looked terrible, it looked like dire straits, and then something and it was, but then the thing that came out of it was actually a boost forward. So I'm just wondering for you, is that a comforting thought or the opposite? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> the, the 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 climate change over the last couple million years, you know, was definitely cyclical. I think what's going on now, certainly there's cyclical climate change still going on, but I think that man is contributing to hastening it quite a bit. And I do think that our the same way that our brains um, saved us literally for you know a million years ago, there were only probably eighteen thousand humans on earth homo sapiens um and you know some think as i write in the book uh, you know a couple hundred thousand of years ago there were uh you know even down to the hundreds of, of homo sapiens um and so it's and the the idea is that we were just so omnivorous we by that point our brains were very complex and adaptable and we could survive in different environments and uh as i write we could there's an anthropologist uh, called Curtis Marion at University of Arizona, I believe, who thinks that we almost we nearly went extinct, or at least the population of us did in the South South Africa, southeastern Africa, and learning to track tides and and access shellfish shellfish beds, so oysters, mussels, and sea snails literally saved us. Um, and all these these they call them population bottlenecks where the human population goes way down, or species, but in the case of humans. And it's thought that we, you know, by that point our brains were creative and intelligent and adaptable, and that and that saved us. So I would like to think that whatever happens, you know, you know taking culture out of it and, and wars and, and, you know, the strife that's going on, in, in, at least in our country, I think our brains are pretty set up for adaptability and will hopefully, you know, through get through the the storm or whatever climate change does uh, does occur okay i'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because you're saying that human behavior um is uh speeding it up right i'm thinking 3.5 billion years ago there was a little bacteria um cyanobacteria right that that sped it up um and almost caused the end through creating a good thing right photosynthesis that we thought oh that that's now what we're why we're surviving and yet in the time explain a little bit how it it was bad because too much oxygen was created and and what that did yeah, so this is another, uh, I mean, everything in science can be controversial, but it's called the Great Extinction, um, one of many Great Extinctions over the millennia. Um, so, you know, bacteria, life on Earth evolved around 3.5 million years ago in the form of single-celled organisms. Uh, archaea and bacteria were the first, and they're still, you know, two of the two of the pillars of, of life, and are the kingdoms of life, and eventually one bacteria starts photosynthesizing as plants do today using sunlight and and the carbon dioxide to create food and, and pump out oxygen which we all depend on and and so the the earth's uh, atmosphere completely shifted to an oxygenic one and many of the creatures on earth at the time all single-celled you know didn't survive on oxygen so there was a big extinction 
and that sort of set the groundwork for the uh, the, the the plant and animal life that we have today, including ourselves. So the climate and our ecology is a huge part of our evolution, dating back billions of years, like literal billions of years. And and uh, yeah, it's it's part of our story, and it's, it, it'll be very interesting to see where that goes now that you know a single species has taken over the planet and might be contributing to that change. Um, and you know, hopefully, with because of our big brains, we will be able to uh, endure and contain it. You you talk about in the book the early microbes and how they made quick use of ion channels to survive and help sense and react to their environment. So, and if you can explain that a little bit, and then um, because that that seems such a huge part of the development of the brain as well, the ability to um, sense and then react to the environment. It is. It's, it's huge, and you can see this in bacteria. So the, you know, the moment you have a single-celled organism with a, a cell membrane, you have you have an entity. This this is a, a, you know, this is a life form, and in order to live, you have to be able to, you know, maintain your metabolism and, and intake enough nutrients and excrete nutrients as as we all do. And and one one way to do that that all of our cells do is to use an electrical gradient across your cell membrane, again, of, of, of very common molecules like sodium and, chlor- and the potassium and chloride, the same molecules we, we eat every day and our bodies are partially built from. So early single-celled organisms developed uh, basically, a, a, I'd call it a little motor, um, which powered a, a little tail or a, little, a bunch of little hairs called cilia. Um, that could move, you know, allowed it to move. So that was the original movement among among life. Um, you can you can move around. You can detect a food source. You can swim toward it. And you know, who knows if they have any sort of consciousness? This could be just just be a biological reaction or a chemical reaction. Um, but the basis of single cells like bacteria moving toward something they want versus being averse to a toxin and moving away from it is is kind of the origins of of animal, you know, one of the origins of animal life. I mean, animals are defined by movement of some kind and consuming organic material. And that, you know, that goes all the way back 3.5 billion years to bacteria. And we have cilia, right, in our throats. We do, we do. I'm thinking about um, you mentioned naturalist John Muir's claim that these invisibly small mischievous microbes even had the ability to have fun. And, and just as you just say that they're, they're, they're choosing in some way, whether consciously or not, to go towards something they want or away from something they don't want. And, and again and again through the book, I'm thinking about, you know, so much of, and maybe not any longer, but when, when I was a kid, like you just learn, oh, it's all about survival. It's only about survival. Everything is just survival. And of course, it has to be about survival first, right? But then I'm wondering, like, what's next? Because even I'm uh, with the one-cell organisms, and I'm not sure if it was Sheldrake or there was some um, research done where if the cells were just, and and they could survive, you know, technically, um, but if they were just in the Petri dish with nothing acting upon them, no no um, outside stress um, or anything, that they would soon die, right? That they couldn't have too much stress or they would die. But there had to be some action sort of um, involved for them really to thrive, um, wondering as as you've done the research, what what you sort of came to regarding that. Yeah, I, I think that you you know part of life is stimulation and engagement in your environment and and with your, you know, 
your colleagues, friends, and family, you know, even if it's a bacteria, they're still interacting with their their millions of, of brothers and sisters. Um, and, yeah, I think that it's an interesting question that a lot of philosophers deal with. You know, what is consciousness? Does the fact that a bacteria, you know, a bacteria can react to something in a unique way that is exclusive to that bacteria, does that mean it has some degree of consciousness or a subjective experience? And and many think so, and that goes back to that John Muir quote about how microbes might be able to have fun, quote-unquote. Uh, you know, that who knows to be honest but some people think that yes any anything that is experiencing something that's unique to them a subjective experience that that could be a form of consciousness because no no one else no other person no other bacteria would know what it is like to be that that individual organism um you know i and i agree i, I kind of get that on a philosophical level um i don't know if if many other species besides humans and perhaps chimpanzees, bonobos, dolphins, and, you know, what we call intelligent species. Other than them, I don't know if, if there's a real rich conscious experience in, say, a, you know, the rabbit I'm actually looking at right now in my backyard because I'm on my back porch. But, you know, I think it's probably a gradient or a continuum. Um, and, yeah, consciousness, eventually it really just blossoms into this, uh, this awareness of ourselves in the world that, that we have. Just as you said that, I was thinking, yeah, or a distinct consciousness, right? Maybe not so much an awareness of being aware, which maybe is healthier, right? <laughs> the direction now of mindfulness, <laughs> of actually there, there's an awareness of an experience of the experience, right? Which in a way, um, we're now sort of um, heading towards as being more, more rich. Um, so you mentioned chimpanzees. Let's talk about our relationship to the chimpanzees and the apes um, and what genes and qualities we we share. Uh, sure. So, I mean, we, I think we've all heard that, you know, our chimpanzees are our closest cousins. We share roughly 90, 99% of our DNA. Um, and bonobos, you know, often get short shrift, but they're equally related to us. Uh, they split, they and chimpanzees split some millions of years ago, but very, very closely related to us and share so many qualities. And to talk, you know, going back to consciousness, there's an idea called theory of mind that philosophers and psychologists study, which is basically the idea that um, you are aware that someone else can have a different opinion than you or a different stance or perspective than you, which is, you know, very rare in nature. Um, Human children get it probably around two or three. They're they're like, oh, my my parent thinks something different than I do right now, and they often use that to manipulate the parent to get what they want, which you know is natural. And uh, and chimpanzees seem to express the same um, trait or skill, if, if you will, where they you know if if you have a, a experiment where food is hidden behind something and they can see the human researcher looking toward them they know if that human can see the food or not. And if the human can't see it, they'll run in and steal it. If the human can see it, they won't because they know they'll get in trouble. Um, and the same, you know, has been proposed in, in even monkeys, which are, much, you know, they're much older than, than us apes, and we are, you know, we qualify as an ape, um, classify as an ape. Um, but, yeah, the chimps and bonobos share so many um, overlapping traits with us. It's, it's kind of overwhelming, and that's part of why I wanted to write the book. Um, one example, I was at the San Diego Zoo in California, and a young girl had a bottle of water, 
and this bonobo, a young female bonobo, came running over to the glass partition at the zoo and kept pointing at the bottle of water and then uh, was urging this girl to move a couple feet over and then kept pointing at a hole in the partition, hmm. basically asking her to pour the water through it so the bonobo could drink it. And it was such a complex human-like, you know, task and endeavor. I was like, well, this is this is fascinating, and that's partially why I... I really dove into primate and ape behavior in the book. But yeah, we share a, we, we share a lot. And and I'm thinking of the study they did to, and I don't remember which it, it was, a chimpanzee or a monkey or even an ape, but I, I think I don't think it was an ape, but as far as altruism where um, when the one got the banana but they didn't give one to their friend, they wouldn't eat it. Like they waited until the other one got one too because um, they couldn't share it because they were in separate cages um yeah that's a that so that's kind of gets gets to the core of our relationship with other apes the the generalization is that our close cousins the chimps are are kind of uh, selfish you know bastards sometimes and kind of represent our our dark side whereas bonobos are are much more altruistic they're willing to share food with their group and just a kinder, and the idea is that we, you know, we're so closely related to both that perhaps somehow that's rooted in how humans can be so, you know, kind and benevolent, but also terrible and, and murderous, and you know, wage war. Um, and the joke is that bonobos are a matriarchal society, so the women are in charge, and that's probably why things are less violent and more more serene. Yeah, I was loving the bonobos, um, and I was a little fearful of the the chimpanzees with their coordinated brutality, and then the one that went wild um, and, and ripped off the like hands and face of a woman. So yeah, let's talk a little get, bit. They get violent. They get violent. Let's talk a little bit about the splits because there was this. There's the splits among the chimpanzees, and there's the splits from um, the chimpanzees and apes to humans. Um, and and again, it seems like developing theories. Um, where do you feel like we are on that, or where wh- where did you settle by the by the end of the book, as far as the causes of the splits? Uh, well, the splits in evolution are you know everything's ra- I mean so much of it is random. It's based on random genetic mutations. It's based on something called genetic drift, where as you have kids in a certain population you know, you're going to pass on certain genes randomly and that's going to change your genetic profile versus your neighboring community. But uh, in general, the, you know, the, the fossil evidence has shown this for decades, but now that we have such good genetic evidence, we, you know, what we call the great apes are basically, you know, gorillas, bonobos, chimpanzees, humans, orangutans, and, and we split from primates, um, probably, you know, other other primates like monkeys 25 million years ago or so. Uh, and I think the, the important thing to remember about evolution, and one thing that gets often misinterpreted, is that it's a, a clean line or a linear march from, you know, monkeys evolved into to chimps or apes, and then apes evolved into human apes. And it's not it's not that clean. It's a real evolution, like most of biology, is a complicated mess. And species are adapting to their environment all the time and dying out and going extinct. And and so, you know, around 7 million years ago, there was probably a, a chimp-like ape that was split. You know, one, one child went in one way, one went in the other way because they had slightly different biological traits. And you get 
the the chimp lineage, and then you get what led to the human lineage. So it's it's not as if we evolved from chimpanzees or or other apes. It's that we share a common ancestor seven million years ago, and you know they've been evolving for seven million years since then. So they've changed, we've changed, um, but we're all still incredibly related. But yeah, if you if you draw the the rough tree or shrub as I call it in the bush, it's in the book. It's a uh, you know about seven million years ago we split with the lineage that led to chimps, and then there's a whole line of, of hominins, which is the you know, what, what anthropologists call anything, any species on our lineage post that split. You get increasingly human-looking species. Like we get, we start walking on two legs, we grow taller, we, we're more upright, we have a, a rotating torso and can throw and hunt, and you get to Homo erectus about two million years ago, and you have a relatively-looking uh I think it's so important to think of it as a complicated mess, right? And and you talk about the brain being a complicated mess, that it really is yep. this, you know, development of these folds and the, the circuitry and some things were working and then other weren't. And so it was more on top of that and top of that and diversion because we do, I think, tend to distill things down to uh, simple, the simplest linear explanation. And I think that's so dangerous. Yep. And the idea that all of these different things were going on at different times in different places and 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 that um, things were changing based on different factors. You talk a lot about the importance of the weather and the the change of weather in prompting different adaptions and and that's all over the the globe at any given moment right so so different um, species are reacting to those different changes at the same time. Exactly. The your econ, ecological niche, as you would call it, is you know, or just your important to driving evolution. It's a, it's a combination of your, you know, your biological, your, whether it's mutation or genetic drift. You know, the the biology you're given is you know lives in concert with the, with your environment. So, if if you know a climate change sets in, or it's a glacial period and things cool and get dry, you know, the brain that's more adapted to survive that or figure out how to sustain themselves, find food, which, you know, equates with reproduction and passing your genes along are going, we're just going to have a higher likelihood of surviving. So that's, that's incredibly important to the, to the whole human story for sure. Okay, I want to talk about communication and language in a minute. But before I want to give a shout out to the bird brains, just because um, the the what the crows can do are incredible, right? And I'm, I know when Puckett said, oh, well, you know, humans are the only ones that can, you know, planning and patience. And we see that's not true so much with the chimps orchestrated attacks, but also with the crows. So um, I want to talk about the, the crows a little bit and the idea that um, that our opinions and theories around the brain are developing as well. That before, you know, we sort of thought there was so much um, focus put on the relative brain size, right? And then the idea that the the brain spheres were split, or or most recently the one that I think was so impactful, the idea that it was a separate operating system, so that really didn't impact what was going on in other parts of the body, like as far as digestion and the stomach. And then we realize that's completely false. So it makes me think two things: one, that there's many theories we're operating on now that will will prove to be false, and maybe that'll be our last question at the end of the interview: what you think that is. Um, but but let's start with the crows and you can maybe talk about what they the amazing thing they do to crack them yeah so birds can be incredibly smart um you know they scientists measure 
quote-unquote intelligence by something called the encephalization quotient, which is the size of your brain relative your, to your body compared to other species of your size. So the, and, a, and a dog could be roughly the same weight, a big dog, um, and have roughly the same you know, body habitus. But their chimpanzee's brain is, is a lot bigger for the expected, you know, than you would expect for an animal of that size. And crows and corvids, which are the class of birds that are really intelligent, uh, ravens, crows, magpies, and also uh, parrots and, and jays, can be incredibly smart. And and they are they you know they're up there with with chimpanzees and dolphins and these other these other smart species. Um, but yeah, there's this particular population of crows in Japan that have learned um, to basically there's a there's walnut a lot of walnut trees around this one university and they will take a walnut and they'll walk it out to the crosswalk uh, in a in a in a street when there's a red light um, and then they'll they'll walk back. They do this together. So you can watch it watch it on YouTube if you Google it. And then they'll wait for the light to change green, and the cars will roll through the the light, crack the nuts, and then the crows, when the light's red again, will walk back out and get the nuts out of the shell, and you know enjoy their their feast. And they this is a, a new behavior that, that scientists in Japan have just witnessed them. Um, so it's clear that they can they're incredibly intelligent. They can learn new creative behaviors like that. So it's not just you know us fancy primates and and monkeys and chimps and, and dolphins. Uh, birds can be incredibly intelligent. So I'm going to string a, a few things along. So so I want to talk about sure. um, why we develop in a manner that enhances our life experience. And some of the things you mentioned earlier, memory, emotion, context, creativity, and then the relationship to that, the amygdala, uh-huh. um, and the current stresses on our poor amygdala. Um, but, but connected to maybe, um, you know, from the beginning, you talk a lot in the book about um, DNA and that 90% of DNA doesn't code for proteins and, and most genetic material is, is inert or controls other DNA and turning genes on and off. And I was thinking of like a computer, right? It's all zeros and ones, zeros and ones, off or on, off or on. But that's not the case so much now. Um, and, and, um, the and if we let, maybe look at that from the perspective of the amygdala, like what what was the role of the amygdala and what was it responding to early on, and then um, how how is its relationship sort of changed with um, the level of anxiety that that we experience now as a culture? Uh, sure. Yeah. the The analogy to computers is, is an interesting one and one that comes up a lot, um, especially with the, with. Um, you know, computer scientists and AI specialists and researchers. Um, yeah, it's in terms of that. It's the computer. A computer is not a perfect analogy for a human brain in terms of how it works, but it, it's a very nice metaphorical analogy because I think AI systems are trying to mimic human-like behaviors, of course, and with you know deep learning and you know far beyond playing chess like we were ten or fifteen years ago, and um, but get to the amygdala, which is generally considered our emotional center, the emotional center of our brain, especially emotions around fear and and, and anxiety and being scared, um, it, it arose relatively early in our evolution, way back in, in probably mammals, and there's pro- there are actually, uh, you know, a proto-amygdala in fish, um, honestly, probably originally just out of survival, just you know, as a fear center, um, if my life is at risk right now, 
you know, and I happen to have a slightly more functional region of my brain that we ended up calling the amygdala millions of years later, it, it triggers you to swim away and, uh, you know, get away from that threat. And then in mammals, you see much more complex emotion occurring, the, you know, uh, we could call it the, uh, the paleo-mammalian brain, meaning the old mammalian brain. So as mammals evolved about 250 million years ago, you ended up with much more, just much more emotion. You have maternal and, and child bonding. Um, uh, you know, these relationships just develop in a much deeper sense than they would in, say, a fish or a reptile through, you know, through hormones like oxytocin, which is called the cuddle hormone, through just our brain circuitry, uh, we just develop a deeper bond with with our, our loved ones, our children, our, our friends even, or our community. And a lot of that is driven through the amygdala. It's, it, you know, you, it, not to be reductionist about it and take the romance out of emotion, but you can scan a brain and watch the amygdala really fire if you're in an emotional state, um, especially fear, but also other emotions. And it's part of our reward center. So if you have a, a loving relationship or even, you know, even a lustful, you know, sexual relationship, like your amygdala is involved and and really helps solidify those social relationships. So I think it's really critical to the to, to the human story for sure. I'm just thinking of the new pressures, right? Because originally the amygdala was reacting to things externally, a sense of smell or taste or um, sight or something that wasn't outside uh, danger or something that was outside that was desirable, right? And now it seems like it's got a whole nother level of duty as far as so many you talk about, you know, being nervous to give a speech or or something that another part of the brain conjures up um, and, and creates fear or anxiety or stress around that then um, the amygdala reacts to. So it's, it's, it's reacting to an internal stressor rather than an external yeah, that's so. That's the problem with being too smart. That's the downside. Is a uh, we, you know, we get nervous about giving a speech or, or we, you know, about our work email. All this stuff that no other species worries about, right? So that's that's coming from more modern um, areas of our brain, mainly the cortex or the prefrontal cortex, the big area right below your for you know your forehead. That you know with the exception of chimpanzees and bonobos, you know, really no other species, and, and dolphins and, and orcas, but, you know, we have the biggest one of all species, the, the biggest prefrontal cortex for our size, and it, it creates internal, you know, with with awareness of ourselves and our environment comes pleasures that other species probably can't experience, but also, you know, worries and anxieties. You know, a, a chimpanzee is not going to get up there on a podium and be nervous about giving a speech if it, if it could, um, but we are, and you know, we create these neuroses from our big brains, and that's uh, that's the downside of really complicated thought is having these problems. And that the same goes for complex mental illnesses like uh, schizophrenia. Like most other species, don't have schizophrenia or psychosis, um, where we have delusions and hallucinations and thoughts that aren't real. And um, you know, so when you have a, a big, I've written about this for Scientific American in the past. Uh, when you have a big, fancy brain capable of complex thought, the you know when when things go wrong, it's also a complex failure. You know, so you end up with you know fear of public speaking, schizophrenia, just any name your uh, you know your mental condition. 
So let's talk a little bit out of the chimpanzee, what keeps it from giving the speech, because <laughs> getting up on the podium and giving the speech, because I'm thinking like it probably wouldn't be nervous, but the bonobo might if it could. Um, well, let's talk about that distinction between language, because I can remember you talk some in the book, someone said that, you know, that's the thing, like if chimpanzees did have language in the way that we did, um, or or apes or, or um, you know, that, that that's such a big uh, divider that the language that language development um, really set us on a separate track for our ability to be able to um, find food and say hey everybody there's food over here or um, to share stories and to create um, you know you talk I think about calling it, you call it maybe social evolution um, let's talk about the the importance of that a little bit yeah, so so primates, most primates are, are incredibly social creatures. So you watch, you know, go to the zoo and, and go to the monkey, uh, the, you know, the, the monkey arena or whatever they call it. They are incredibly social. They rely on grooming each other all day long to maintain social relationships. That's especially true in apes, uh, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, uh, orangutans, um, and and you know, through grooming, they can maintain about. Roughly 50 meaningful acquaintances or friends or family members, um, but that takes a long time because you're grooming each other all day long. They're literally picking you know, bugs off each other's fur, and um, so once we develop this ability through probably through mimicry, learning to, you know, I mean chimpanzees have plenty of sounds that they use to communicate, and over time that they, they probably just took on more meaning in our lineage, and you end up with a, a symbolic ability, symbolic thought and symbolic language and then we can maintain you know all of a sudden you can maintain a, a social group um, that's much more efficient without having to groom somebody all day long so eventually hu early humans are able to have about 150 friends according to Robin Dunbar a psychologist in the UK and that number is debated it's hard to put our number on friend groups and of course but in general you know, 100 to 200 meaningful relationships is, is mostly what humans still carry out to this day. And I think that's it's still one of the pillars of brain health is uh, maintaining social relationships and having social engagement for sure. And that's part of the primate, this part of the primate story too. And I think we've taken it to its extreme um, because once you have symbolic language, information can be passed so quickly that this is when cultural evolution starts superseding biological evolution and you you can sh you know someone figures out how to build a, a, a slightly better hand axe out of a, a chipped piece of stone you can share that information with your colleagues and all of a sudden the whole community can make that hand axe and that community probably will outcompete the neighboring community and so their genes will be passed on and so you imagine that iteration thousands of times through thousands of years uh, millions of years and you know, culture just expands like, you know, like crazy in the last hundred thousand years. You know, we, that's when we started painting caves and painting our faces and making jewelry and, and not just us, uh, Neanderthals and our human cousins for sure. But that's when cultural cultural evolution just uh, exponentially grows. And that's sort of the story of us. That's where we're, we're at now with technology and iPhones and, you know, Elon Musk, whatever, whatever's happening out there. This is cultural evolution is barreling past our biology. And connected with that, maybe one of the ideas that before um, have now been shown to not be quite so accurate, it's the survival of the fittest and the idea that 
um, the individual who's the strongest and then also maybe tends towards violence to, to put down the other, that that's not the best um, path towards survival and thriving. And that actually collaboration and um, building strong community is the thing that m- most likely ensures uh, survival and thriving. It, sure, in, in us for sure, it's a. I mean, it's a bit of both in nature. Um, you know, chimpanzees ha- can be successful by being violent. That's you know, they they do gang up to murder neighboring communities. They're the only other species besides us that does that. Uh, coordinated attacks on our own, our own kind, and that has served them well. I mean, you know, if, if you're, it's all about survival and reproduction. So if you're, if a bunch of chimpanzee males in one community, you know, off a bunch of males in the other community, you are upping your chances of reproductive success and survival. But in humans, it, you know, if that goes too far, um, thankfully, at least, even though we seem like we can be terrible people, we are less violent. And the ideas that, uh, that comes from uh, anthropologist Richard Wrangham and Brian Hare, that we are self-domesticated in that if we get too violent, you know, the the group or our community is going to call us out on that. And, you know, back in the day, literally probably, you know, murder that person. And and so there was selection, a sort of self-domestication for a more friendly, docile uh, ape, basically, in our species. Uh, the the term for that is survival of the friendliest, a little riff on, on Darwin's survival of the fittest. And so it's a balance between you know, violence actually helping uh, maintain our species and our genome and also being benevolent and, um, you know, appreciating our community and, you know, watching out for each other, uh, which is, you know, sort of the nice aspect of of being a homo sapien. Um, So, yeah, so I think we, thankfully, more recently, in the last couple hundred thousand years, have been pushed toward being more benevolent apes, if that's that's how I can say it. And I loved you talk about dogs being self-domesticated as well uh-huh. and, and the value in that and their ability to kind of sense um, sense things that, that otherwise they may not have been able to keep certain cues. Um, so where, after all this research and talking to all of these specialists, and I was really laughing because it's like, well, it's either like a million years is nothing. Well, it was either like 7 million years ago or 1 million years ago. <laughs> like that's, the, the time frame is definitely altered um, in, in a it lot is, of these it's discussions. Hard, it's hard to comprehend with yeah, our, yeah. As, a, as a modern human, yeah. So where do you feel... Um, what is the question that you would like most answered uh, in the next decade? And and is there an area that you feel maybe we've gotten wrong? I think the big question is where our brains are going and is there going to be meaningful biological change in our brains? Is natural selection still occurring on our brains in a Darwinian sense? Um, just because culture has so has really just overtaken our biology, um, you know, and, and people worry about, you know, our collective diet, our, the global diet, you know, despite local food movements and you know, people trying to buy from farms and everything, and it's still it's still a very processed diet that is completely different than humans ate for millions of years. Will that have meaningful effects on the brain? Is the question, and and it could, and not just the brain, our, our bodies in general. Um, there's a concept called epigenetics, where environmental influences can change our our DNA uh, permanently uh, in ways that are heritable. 
um, not not your genetic code per se, but just the structure of your DNA. Um, and then the big question is the way that we communicate now. You know, everything is is on text and TikTok, and you know, of course, we're all zooming now instead of being in person. Um, you know, and that will have. I think that that will have pretty big consequences. Certainly, uh, how children are brought up to socialize, and um, but that you know that could be a psychological uh, impact and a cultural impact rather than a biological. And but I don't think we know yet because it's, it's so all these technologies are so young compared to our million, you know, seven million year history. Um, it's just a blip on the radar of of the history of the Earth. So we, we will have to wait and see. And I think that's that's what's exciting. That's the you know, it's, it's exciting. It's a little bit terrifying. We'll see where it goes. Well, yeah, and we know the brain's going to respond to those, right, that, that we're still selectively adapting and that you can see that even in the difference of brain mapping in the last couple generations as far as, you know, older brains, pre-computer focus, you know, we adapt, we look at the black print on a page, whereas the newer brains of the last couple generations will react to a, an image or to, you know, a colored background more than, than the white background. So like, even in just as short terms, we can already see the differences of, of synapses that are are being connected and the, the focus of the brain. And just from your, what you're saying now, you think of the kids, you know, are responding, responding to cues, depending on how long, you know, mask wearing goes on. Um, um, there are a lot of cues that our brains are not reacting to, and we're going to have to have to adapt. Of course, and that's a lot of that. The returning to parse out is this is just you know we're we're basically using a, a million year old brain, an ancient you know machine, if you will, to process all this new information. So presumably, those kind of changes are already inherent to our brain. Um, you know that's you know you go back a million years ago to a, to find a, a homo erectus their brain probably would do the same response to an iphone or to, ma to mask wearing for a year um but will that lead to meaning like an actual physical change to a, to our genomes or to mm -hmm. our brain um that i don't think anyone can say yet but but yeah the beauty of the brain is it's incredibly plastic and adaptable so you're you're going to see measurable differences on say an mri after a year of of isolation and, and covid masks for sure which, again, is something that's new, right? When I was growing up, it was like, oh, you better not drink. You Once you kill those brain cells, they won't come back. Um, turns out not to be true. It's not true. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, was, I feel like I was taught that in medical school, and, and apologies to the University of Virginia if, if I wasn't, but I think I was, that the brain, um, yeah, once you're an adult, it's, it's, it's developed. That's it. You mm -hmm. can't develop, you can't grow new brain cells. Your brain's not adaptable, and... It turns out it's definitely not the case. Um, for part of the brain, it certainly is. But, you know, our, our hippocampus, which is our memory center, creates is growing new brain cells from neurological stem cells. Um, we're creating new brain connections to make memories. Um, our amygdala is creating new connections all the time and, you know, making emotional memories. And um, so, yeah, that's the, good, that's the good thing is that as we age and live longer and longer, we, you know, your brain still has the ability to... Uh, to grow and to thrive and, and be healthy, especially if you take care of yourself. Yeah, you talked about at the end of the book um, some of the studies on just, you know, four years of eating, uh, you know, a certain type of diet and the impact that ha that has on us um, negatively or positively. That 
So the brain rocks, um, clearly, and, and its history is extremely interesting. What is it, like, you, you talked a little about why it's important to you to start studying it, um, and then to write a book on it. What do you want people to start thinking about? Why is it beneficial to the rest of us to, to know and understand the brain better? I think, as I alluded to early in the interview, I think in, in the interest of preserving our own brain health, it's 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 uh, it's worthwhile to just think about where our brain came from and the influences that that, that led us to evolve this big brain and this complicated brain, um, because you know to preserve our cognition to prevent dementia and cognitive decline, uh, a lot of the the you know we have there are no treatments for say Alzheimer's disease really that disease so the best we can do is prevention which you can start at any point it'll it will work and you know these are these are things like socializing just being engaged um uh, omnivorous diet like we talked about um which you know translates into the modern mediterranean diet or the scandinavian or japanese diet just a balanced diet low in processed foods if possible um i know that can be very hard in, in food deserts and you know, it's it's certainly there are disparities there that problem. But you know, if if we, you can balance a diet with with seafood and you know heavily plant based whole grains, the occasional lean red meat, uh, the occasional wine, just to relax. Uh, that you know that sort of reflects where our diet came from. Like you know, our our paleo diet, if you will, not not touting the paleo diet, but you know, literally our paleo diet, and uh, and creativity and mental engagement. Is how we got, you know, partially how we got here. Uh, crafting tools, harnessing fire, uh, you know, cooking our food, building, you know, making weapons. Unfortunately, that's part of our story, and that's, you know, just engaging your brain in something interesting, new that you haven't challenged yourself to before. So, if you already do crosswords, unfortunately, crosswords aren't going to do much. But keep doing it. Pick up a new, a new hobby, like an instrument, or a, you know, you know, study up on a new topic. Just anything that engages your brain. And the interesting part to me is, is how much that reflects, you know, where our brains came from. And the next time you throw back a slimy oyster, pay homage to your ancestors. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Brett. Brett is the author of A History of the Human Brain from the Sea Sponge CRISPR, How Our Brain Evolved. It was wonderful speaking to you. I really appreciate you. Oh, it's been great. I really appreciate you having me. This, this was fun. Glad to do it again, Ellie. And uh, yeah, thanks for some excellent questions. Okay, awesome, awesome, Brett. Thank you.